Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host and uh, my dear old dad, Ronnie's taking the day off because because um, he's old. He's he's just old and he deserves a day off. And we're co-produced by my pal, Tristan Drew. And obviously, if you like the show, please subscribe, review, share and all that good stuff and follow us on all the Twitters and stuff. Uh, I don't want to waste any more time because today is just an absolutely special day for me. I have a gentleman that I've considered a mentor from afar for a long time. Charlie Sykes is the editor-in-chief of The Bulwark and host of the popular podcast of called The Bulwark, coincidentally. <laughs> uh, Charlie was a longtime top-rated talk show host and was one of the most influential voices in conservative politics, especially in his home state of Wisconsin, having helped elevate figures like Paul Ryan, Scott Walker, and <laughs> Charlie's probably going to cringe when I remind him of this. Ron John, Senator Ron Johnson. <laughs> but sometime around 2000, late 2015, early 2016, he started to rethink all that and frankly, eventually gave it up on principle. Um, I don't know what was happening uh, in American politics in 2016. I, I've heard rumblings of something, remember something vaguely to cause a guy at the top of his game to risk it all. But Maybe today we'll uh, we'll figure it out. Charlie, this is an absolute honor. Thank you for coming in. How are you? Hey, it, it, it's my pleasure. Don't worry about the cringing thing because I spend an awful lot of my time cringing these days. <laughs> That's sort of my default setting, the, the cringe. <laughs> There's a lot of that. I, You know, I give you credit. I remember listening to you at the height of your days as a, in the conservative world, media world. And not all pundits were the same. Not all commentators were the same. There were some guys who look very much like a lot of what we have today, guys who are just finding more creative ways to just sound hateful. They, they had sort of one dimension. But I, I, I always found you to be much more nuanced in your thinking, that you definitely had a strong point of view. You had uh, very strong, deep roots in conservative thinking but you were able to have intelligent conversations with people that you disagreed with. And you can't say that about everyone, even going back to the early nineties when you were really getting started. Well, thank you. That's very, that's very flattering. Yeah. Was that a decision on your part just to engage in, in meaningful conversations with other intelligent people that you disagreed with? Well, basically that's the mission statement right there. I mean, that's, that's what, that's what I, I tried to do on the radio and what I tried to do on the podcast what what is the point otherwise? <laughs> really, I, I think you know maybe one of the differences was that I you know came to radio from the outside from print. You know, by the time I started on the radio, I had uh, been a newspaper reporter, I'd been a magazine editor, I'd, I'd written some books. Uh, so I, I, I approached it in a different way. I mean, I, I wanted to communicate, and and frankly, that was that was the pleasure of doing the job. I mean, there were a lot of not pleasurable things about doing the job, which we can get to, <laughs> uh, but. 
you know, basically showing up and having interesting conversations with interesting people every day, uh, which which I enjoy. And, I, and regard as an, an incredible, really an incredible uh, privilege to be able to do that. There's someone I wanted to ask you about, and I'm wondering how this might have shaped what you do to this day. Um, in your book, How the Right Lost Its Mind, you dedicate the book to your father, J.G. Mm-hmm. Sykes. Mm-hmm. Curm- <laughs> I love this part. Mm-hmm. Curmudgeon, contrarian, and mentor. Um, and I think I told you, if I ever write a book mm-hmm. like yours, I could <laughs> dedicate it to my father too, except he'd be pain in the ass, mashugana, and mentor. <laughs> so, <laughs> can, can you tell us about your, your dad, J. Sykes? Yeah, I, I I don't think I can overstate the influence. Um, you know, I'm an, I'm an only child, and I actually always called him Jay rather than Dad, which is like start off out of the weird right there. So, um, and and he he was a journalist, and he was uh, a political gadfly, and then later a, a a professor. And so, you know, I look back on a lot of the things that I ended up doing, and it, it flows so directly out of my experience with him. I mean, he was an editorial writer, he was a columnist, he was an author. Uh, he loved to be the contrarian so that, you know, at, at every, at every party, he would uh, make himself, I think probably the most unpopular guy by, by sort of picking an argument, not, not in a mean or, or vicious way, but he loved to argue. And I picked that up with him. I mean, I love to have these conversations and he was, he was a brilliant man and a much better writer than I ever was. Um, and I often think what it would be like to be able to sit down with him and say, okay, by the way, you know, since you left, uh, these are the kinds of things I've been doing. There was this whole talk radio thing. And then there was the book that I wrote based on an article that you wrote. And I'm doing some of the same sort of things from a different kind of, you know, different point of view. So really it's hard for me to overstate uh, the kind of influence he had on me. I'm trying to imagine dinner at the Sykes house and him arguing with you and that being sort of a training ground for you. It was hard on the women in the family because, um, I mean, they all, it often ended with, would you guys stop it or in tears because we regarded it as, as kind of a, a contact sport, but, but with, with no bad will. I guess that was part of it is that you could have aggressive conversations um, without being mean about it, but not everybody had the same taste. I, I have to say that it was an acquired taste and I've gotten a little bit better at it than I was. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that many of the people who listen to me now would have really liked me all that much as a younger, as a much younger version. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. That's very much in the spirit of this project. My father and I have always had interesting conversations. Uh, and I was raised in a very observantly Jewish home. When I became a Christian about 20 years ago, the conversations took a very different bent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've been having, uh, either a different version of the same conversation or an extension of one conversation for the last 20 years. Well, you know, that's, that's also part of it because my, my father was, was very much a, a, well, he was a liberal Democrat. He was the chairman of the Wisconsin civil liberties union in 1968. He was the campaign manager for Eugene McCarthy, the democratic Senator from Minnesota was running against Lyndon Johnson. And so, um, you know, I got involved in politics from that sort of 1960s liberal point of view. Uh, he was a World War II vet, and he was very much opposed to the Vietnam War. But over the next few years, he became very disillusioned with liberalism. And I'm trying to remember who became who moved to the right sooner, but we both did. So in a lot of ways, we tracked in similar directions. But I think that at, at heart, 
we were small L liberals, that we never, we, we may have, uh, you know, aligned ourselves with conservatives, but I always think there was a, maybe a qualitative difference in the way we approach the issues than, than some of the others, because we'll get to it in a little while, you know, why some conservatives went one way in the Trump era and why others didn't. And I think a lot of it has to do with what was your background? Where did you come from? What were your fundamental values? And uh, I, 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 th I think for many years as a conservative, I described myself as a recovering liberal. Um, <laughs> but, but perhaps in retrospect, I never actually, never recovered. And by, by liberal, I mean small L liberal. I wonder if what you might have been reacting to uh, in your political philosophy and your political leanings in the late 60s, early 70s, both you and your father, maybe something similar to what we're what we've been seeing now for at least the last four or five years in that there were extreme examples of say the anti-war movement you shared in in your book about an incident where one of the protesters jumped on the hood of your father's car and you know he was he was uh, eugene mccarthy like he he was he was their guy and yet he wasn't pure enough there were these extremist tendencies there and we see that now where you can't be pure enough in your idolatry of Donald Trump. It, no, it, it, that's absolutely right. It is It is sort of the revolution always eats its own. Uh, a little while ago, I was reading an article from a San Francisco newspaper about the, the white privilege of Bernie Sanders mittens at the inauguration. <laughs> <laughs> sort of reminds you is that there's there's a there's a there's a sect on 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 the left where you can you can never be pure enough and no, no confession no contrition is going to be enough that will constantly be moving the definition so that basically whatever you do whatever you say you're going to be defined as just not good enough yeah so there, there was that and there was that um I, I i think the assault on the universities uh on in in the 1970s uh you know did, did spark a reaction so yeah, I I think that there was a little bit of that that contrariness, where you know if, if you spend enough time around people who browbeat you, telling you you must believe this, so you're part of our team, so therefore these are your beliefs, you know, and they hand them to you on a laminated card, and my father and I were like, screw that, no, no, we're 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 not on that team. Yeah, yeah. Well, going back to your days, you went to University of Wisconsin Milwaukee. I'm curious. What kinds of things you studied English? Uh, what kinds of things were you reading during your time there? And was there anything in particular that you found formative? Well, interesting. I, I think back on that period as three years that I sort of dropped out of the world. Um, I was very involved in politics in high school, really, really intense, um, and it became involved afterwards in journalism. But uh, in, in in college, I kind of dropped out and led almost a monastic existence, believe it or not, where I got through college in three years. I was an English literature major, which, of course, is just as impractical then as it is now, but I, <laughs> I loved it. I really did. And so I, I immersed myself in, the, so we say, the non-modern era you know, focusing on all of that. So I think that I came out of, I, I came out of uh, my undergraduate experience with this profound respect and love of liberal education, um, of language, of words, but also an understanding of, of what I would think of as sort of the tides of history. And th this is one of the things that I think kind of helps is, is to be able to put your time in some sort of historical context and also to understand 
you know, that what we do actually matters. That, and I'm always, I have to admit, I am amazed at the number of actors out there who don't seem to think, um, what is history going to say about the decisions you're making right now? What meaning are you making of your life by the way that you are behaving and the choices that you are making? So I, I, I think out of that short period that I was an undergraduate, I came up with that kind of a impression. Look, I mean, I, you know, I have been a lifelong uh, lover of English literature, and I think that stems from from those three years as an undergraduate. You're obviously a voracious reader. What kinds of things are you reading now? Believe it or not, I'm kind of on a Charles Dickens binge at the moment. Oh, interesting. Um, and this is one of those things where you know, you rediscover something that you loved at a previous era, but are reading it at a different age, bringing a completely different sensibility to it. And I have to say that uh, I am, I am enjoying it absolutely thoroughly. What a humanist he was, the 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 way in which he uh, he really in, invented the social commentary. And you think of the the entire culture of of compassion that came out of, of his works, but also just what a hell of a stylist and a storyteller. You know, about five years ago, I was reading, I was reading two great pieces of fiction at the same time that were in the general same 50 year period. Uh, one was a really good translation of Dostoevsky, Brothers Karamazov, mm -hmm. at the same time that I was reading A Tale of Two Cities. And the strange thing is, that I found A Tale of Two Cities almost more foreign than the really good translation of Dostoevsky. I, I can't, I don't know what to attribute that to, but maybe it's my Eastern European roots or so. I don't know. I don't know what that is. It, it's funny you say that because during my college years, I also um, did a lot of reading in Russian literature and really do like Russian literature. And uh, it's interesting that uh, Dostoevsky was a big fan of Charles Dickens. Oh, in, in in many ways, I think Tale of Two Cities was uh, was the least, you know, quintessentially Dickens book. But I if, this may be an apocryphal story, but I think that I think that Dostoevsky read uh, Dickens uh, carefully. And I think that he might have been familiar with uh, um, Tale of Two Cities. But I think that there was definitely an influence. Hmm. There's another perhaps apocryphal story that is couldn't be more true today about Dostoevsky. He was talking about how the. Uh, art imitates life, some version of that. And he was looking ahead and prognosticating about the future. He said, art imitates life. I could see a day where life begins to imitate art. And, and even further, I can see a day where life draws its very meaning of existence from the arts. Now he was talking about the arts, but if we think of media or, or figures in the media, how true is that? No, it, it is it is absolutely true. And I, and I will tell you that the one sort of, you know, game that I play in my mind to get through all of this is as I read history or go back and read the literature of that period is realize, okay, you know, things might have been really terrible for like how long? How long were things really, really awful in Russia? Um, how long were things really, really rough? You know, how did people get through it? What did they think was happening at the time? Did they think that thing was, things would get better? I won't get too deep into all of this, but I, but I think that's also part of the perspective that that whatever I think you have, you have to fight against the, the the problems of presentism, the temptation of presentism, which is that everything that's happening now is the only thing that's ever happened. It's the only thing that is important. The flip side, of course, is to think that your time doesn't matter. Is that that this is not your moment? And I, I am very very conscious of the fact 
that we are living in a moment, that this is a pivotal moment, that a lot is at stake, which is not true of every decade. You know, you go back and say, okay, you know, what was the most consequential thing that happened during this period of time? Eh, not really. I mean, there are, there are whole sweeps of, of American history that if you don't know anything about it, you're not missing anything. On the other hand, you get the sense that right now, American history is at one of those pivotal points. And therefore, the decisions that people make, the moral decisions, the political decisions, the personal decisions will have consequences. And there are only few times in history that that's true. And, and I say that being very conscious of the need to avoid presentism of thinking that this is the most important thing ever. Because I do think that right now, um, there are a lot of things that are in play that we did not imagine were in play like liberal democracy. Yeah. Uh, well, what comes to mind, I live in California 25. Our representative is Mike Garcia. He won by less than one-tenth of 1%. And I was very encouraged. He's a Republican uh, in a very, like the purplest of districts, 350,000 people plus or minus voted here. I was very encouraged when he was one of about a third of the Republican caucus that didn't sign on to the amicus brief. Right. And leading up to January 6th, I wrote him and said, you know, I give you a lot of credit. I, I was looking at his Twitter feed, his Facebook feed, and the vicious attacks from folks on the right yeah. for him not signing the amicus brief. He ended, up, uh, he ended up voting to object to the electoral college votes in Arizona and Pennsylvania. He did. He did. It was very disappointing, but you know, the next day, my, I, I think differently of it now, because to your point, I think history will judge differently. But that, that day, I couldn't necessarily judge him. I couldn't, I, I couldn't judge him as harshly as maybe I did once he voted against impeachment. Uh, that, that was a different vote. It wasn't the heat that he hadn't been under attack that day. I have really mixed feelings about it. Obviously, all things being equal, if there wasn't an insurrection that day, if he wasn't getting literally thousands of, of vicious, vile, hateful messages in a vacuum, of course, it's of course you certify the the electoral college votes. We know what happened in, in the election, 60 plus or minus uh, cases, uh, you know, yeah. most of which Trump appointed judges. We, we know the whole story, the big lie. We know the whole story. So why are you pandering to the most extreme fraction of, of your base. Why are we going through this exercise? You represent the purple district, but I couldn't judge him because of the, the heatedness of that moment. But to your point, I think history will judge it differently. This is a moment. I, I absolutely think so. And I, and I think that that vote to uh, overturn the Electoral College, I think will be the, the, the vote that I think a lot of people are going to regret. I mean, you, you can look, I, I would have liked him to have voted for impeachment. I think that Donald Trump uh, certainly needs to be held accountable. But to vote to overturn a Democratic election that was free and fair, um, for which there was no credible evidence of, of fraud, that was a key moment. That, that was a breathtaking moment because what you had just experienced was an actual insurrection designed to stop 
the, one of the fundamental constitutional jobs of Congress, which is to count the electoral votes, to overturn a conspiracy to overturn a democratic election, which if you and I had been talking about this a year ago, people would have thought that we were suffering from Trump derangement syndrome. This was yeah. not really, it didn't seem plausible, right? It, you know, but, but, it, but it actually happened. And I don't think that we've fully taken on board exactly how dramatic that was, that whole 77 days from the election leading up to this, uh, all the things that were done in order to delegitimize American democracy. And the consequence of this, I think we will feel for decades. Here's the reason I say I don't necessarily judge him. Maybe I will as I evolve on this, is that I would like to think that if two thirds of my party was making that vote or more, um, that I still would have the integrity and the courage that it takes to vote independently of my party, despite all of the threats that I was getting, despite the, you know, I'd like to think that I'd have that integrity. I'd like to think that I'd have that, I'd have that courage, but I don't, I can't say that for sure because I wasn't in his shoes. Now you and I can talk about it clearly and say, well, of course, this is democracy. This is the very foundation of our country. H how could you vote otherwise? And yet 130 something, uh, how 130? I think it was 138, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you put that together with the group that signed on to that, uh, the, the amicus brief, uh, and you're getting a group of people who really align themselves with a fundamental lie that frankly, there is no excuse for them having fallen for the lie. And and you know look uh, they 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 get pressure right they get they get uh, they get mail right they get phone calls I mean so what this right. is what they went into it I mean why do you why do you become a congressman there are also just fundamental moments where you choose and you never know what it's going to be um, how old is Mike Garcia uh, he's about my age maybe two or three years younger okay forty seven so so he's so he's a young guy. You know, we ask 18 and 19 year olds to make the decision. So do you, do you go over the, you know, do you leave, leave the trench? Do you go over the line? Do you uh, go, go save your buddy? Put your life on the line? We ask firefighters, you know, do you run toward the fire? This is nothing. This is like you yeah. just vote to uphold the Constitution. Yeah. You know, so I'm talking to a guy that was at the very top of his game, a national presence, and you gave it all up. Yeah, and look at me. I'm 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 sitting here in the basement now. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not so bad. Yeah, so I, you're speaking from a point of experience. There's authority to what you say, but I I got off track. Um I'm curious about something else that happened about that time when you were at University of Wisconsin. You became a Catholic. From from what I gather, you weren't raised in a particularly religious home, what prompted the embrace of Catholicism? Well, you're right. My father was Jewish. Oh. Um, my mother was Methodist. And so uh, I was I was nothing. So I had to pick and choose. So I suppose it was part of my contrarianness and everything. I, I was attracted to the, the, the intellectual quality of Catholicism. Um, it was an interesting period of my life. Uh, as, as I said, when that my, those three years were quasi monastic, I suppose it was more than, yeah. more than that. Um, I still have such tremendous respect for the Catholic church. Um, I am a terrible Catholic. <laughs> I, I am, I am, I'm, that was I am my next awful, question. <laughs> I am an off, I am an awful Catholic. 
Um, I still describe myself as a Catholic, but it's more aspirational than descriptive. So basically, when I realized that I could not go into a box and confess my sins, <laughs> all of which were very embarrassing <laughs> at that time in my life, yeah, I realized I don't think I'm going to cut this Catholic thing. So, so I, I was going to ask you if your theological views have evolved or your religious practices have have evolved. It sounds like they have. Well, they, they, no, it is my my personal failings have evolved. Um, the the theology I still I still respect, and I think that they 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 represent the the real height I think of uh, you know man trying to understand his relationship with with God. No, I, I I'm I'm just you know given 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 my horrible track record. I just I I never go out of my way to describe myself as a Catholic. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Um, after school, you had a career in journalism and also ran for state assembly at one point. Have you ever considered running for office again? No, absolutely not. So it, it's actually the opposite. I uh, ran for public office when I was 19 years old oh. um, as a senior in college because I was a little bit bored. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and one of my old teachers, my Russian teacher from high school called up and said, Hey, we'll give you 500 bucks. If we put your name on the ballot, uh, you'll get 25% of the vote. There's no chance you will win. Are you interested? And I said, what the hell not? So <laughs> it's good for the resume, right? <laughs> and I, and, and the, and the voters showed incredible good judgment by giving me 23% of the vote. Oh, terrific. terrific. Which I absolutely deserved getting 23%. And and went on to know the guy that beat me who became rather prominent in Republican politics. Oh, okay. Good guy. But you did have a good stretch in print journalism. Right. How, how did you learn how to write? How did you learn how to be a good reporter? Well, my father was a reporter and editorial writer and was actually the chairman of the mass communications department at the university. I didn't take any of the classes because it was in his department. So I grew up around journalists. So when I was a kid, I would go to the newspaper where he worked. He used to work at the old Milwaukee Sentinel. I was actually there the afternoon that John F. Kennedy was killed. And oh. um, one of my prized possessions at, for many, many years was was the, the the teletype announcement that the president has been shot? Shots fired in Dallas. You know, when the old teletypes would, would come out. So I grew up around newspapers. So that's my only explanation. I was totally unqualified for the jobs that I got. I had graduated from 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 college with a degree in English literature, which qualified me to actually do nothing. <laughs> and um, I was hired by a weekly newspaper where I. Learned a little bit about doing that, but then very quickly was hired by the daily newspaper, the Milwaukee Journal, and um, at a ridiculously early date was named the City Hall Reporter. I think I was 21 years old. Oh, wow. I had no business in that job. So it was a crash course and very adversarial relationship with the mayor. Had to learn basically, was I going to stand up for myself? Was I going to, you know, was I going to dig? What kind of a reporter was I going to be? And I think probably that was the most fun I ever had at a job, being the the daily reporter, um, being a news reporter. Uh, absolutely, absolutely loved it. Wow. Do you see good uh, journalism today? Yeah, I do. Uh, it's sort of the best of times, worst of times, since we were yeah. talking about Dickens. Um, the journalism that you're seeing at, at, the, at the national level, the, from the Times, the Washington Post, and others, is, I think, the best journalism of our lifetime, including anything that we saw during Watergate. The flip side 
is that we're seeing the hollowing out of journalism all around the rest of the country with the death of local newspapers and local media, which is just horrific. So this huge gap that's forming with these news deserts, uh, young journalists not having any place to go. So we're having outstanding journalism. I mean, of course, there's a lot of crap as well. I mean, we, yeah. we can talk about, you know, the opinion journalism or just the propaganda journalism, the cut and paste journalism. Right. But I have to say that uh, there are reporters right now doing just truly amazing amazing work. Yeah. One of my regrets about our culture is that this whole, you know, fake news, MSM bias has, has stuck for the most part. It's the, a minority of people who will stand up and say, no, you know what? Ashley Parker is a really good journalist. Bob She's Costa great. is a great journalist. Yep. Uh, so, so, uh, Farenthold, like so, mm -hmm. so many, and even some of the thinkers, uh, Ross Douthat, David mm -hmm. Brooks, um, uh, I, Kathleen Park, like you, you could just go on and on about the great thinking and writing that's happening right now. And yet you send something to someone that might happen to have the times or the post, you know, the, the, the banner on it and they, they just dismiss it. Oh, that's just a liberal rag, you know? Well, you know, the story that I've told about this is, you know, I'm, I'm part of the critique of the media. I mean, one it's of the your things fault. In, 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 well, <laughs> in conservative talk radio, one of the, the, the constant themes was criticism of media bias. In fact, it's been a theme on the right, uh, you know, way back into the 50s and the 1960s. And so I would say that virtually every day I would critique the media, but I always did it from the point of view of wanting to make it better and less biased. Mm. I was always the assumption that, okay, here's the mainstream dominant media and I'm going to tell you the other side. The assumption being that it was the other side. What hit me in 2015 and 2016 was, oh crap, we have succeeded in delegitimizing all of the fact-based media. We have been so successful that in fact um, we have well, we've, we've destroyed the immune system of the right to fake news. And it was the exact experience that you just described there. For years, when people would send me false stories, bogus stories, I would try to push back and send, you know, say, hey, listen, um, you don't want to be peddling this. You don't want to be forwarding Uncle Otto's emails because this is crap. <laughs> and here's a story showing that it's crap. And people would for 20 years write back and say, hey, thanks, Charlie. I appreciate that. I won't, uh, won't form, you know, I won't be forwarding, you know, Uncle Otto's uh, crap anymore. But in 2015 and 2016, it began to change. And when I would push back and say, no, okay, so there's not a warehouse with bodies of Hillary's victims stacked up. You know, no, this is, you know, this, this story's not true. People would say, well, you know, you're sending me a story from the New York Times or NPR or NBC. This is all liberal crap. And what I realized was that we'd formed this these uh, alternative reality silos. They were more than echo chambers. They were silos. And that within those silos, you could not break through if, if a story was, was, was bullshit. And so we've seen that accelerate. I mean, at the end of this period, when I wrote my book, I said, everything I'm describing here is going to get worse. But even so, it got way worse than I thought. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that right now, how impenetrable these conspiracy theories are, or within that silo, not only are you immune to anything from the outside, but the worst, most toxic sorts of falsehoods can can just fester and grow and explode. And now we're just living in that world. Yeah. It's not just dumb fuckery, it's dumb fuckeritis. 
absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there was a time when I thought, look, of course, there's dumb fuckery out there and we're going to keep it isolated. It's going to be in the corners, you know, the drunken guy at the end of the bar. Right. So we could kind of roll our eyes and we don't necessarily need to do anything about it because dumb fuckery is dumb fuckery. Now, suddenly what happens when that becomes the mainstream? When, in fact, um, somebody comes up with something that is just completely absurd and you push back and, and you realize you're not making any progress whatsoever. And then, of course, you've had 40 years of a president of the president mm. of the United States yeah. being the vector of much of the dumb fuckery. Yeah. Thank you for working in one of my favorite words of the month. <laughs> well, I kind well, of we, we've used it. up the quota now. Though, yeah, right? yeah, we did. Uh, well, the other side of this, though, is I, I've heard you, among many other contemporary writers and thinkers, I, I really admire, speak of the influence of William F. Buckley and his writing that that it had on you and uh, so many of the other thinkers that I really respect. Can you give us a snapshot of the place he holds in conservative thought? Well, first of all, in my own personal story, I started reading, uh, you know, his books, his, all of all of his books. I've read every one of his books in during the 1970s, and this is when I began to think that you know conservatism was uh, a serious intellectual movement. I really thought some of the best stuff on the right. I mean, think about being a young person looking around at politics, and there was William F. Buckley, and there was George Will, there was Charles Krauthammer, and they were. They were the most, I think, provocative writing and they, writers, and they really appealed to me because they were willing to challenge many of the verities and many of the orthodoxies out there. We can talk about them a little bit later because I've obviously, you know, stayed close to some of them, um, including like Will, who's gone in a different direction. But Buckley, Buckley's role is is irreplaceable because not just his influence on me, but he really is the founder of the modern conservative intellectual movement. There's just no other version of the story. When he founded National Review, he basically said, look, there's a lot of crazy stuff out here. There's a lot of conspiracy theories. We need to have a coherent, you know, rational home for conservatism. If we want conservatism to be taken seriously, we need to have journals where smart people will write and will develop these ideas. And he did that. And, and he played a role in the conservative movement that no one has played since, and certainly no one plays now. And I think one of the key moments in his career, which I describe in my book, was the excommunication of the John Birch Society from the conservative movement, yeah. where he said, look, um, you know, we're anti-communist. I mean, his credentials were so solid, he had the credibility to do this. So, but if we ever want to have conservatives taken seriously in our society, we can't be associating with people who believe that Dwight David Eisenhower is a knowing agent of the Communist Party. I mean, these people are liars. <laughs> they're fabulous. They're conspiracy theorists. And they, and they have to go. And he did that uh, because he, he saw some, because he saw the need for ideological hygiene. No one is in a position to do that now. We've had moments over the last 20 years, but not leading thinkers who would take that stance over an extended period of time. For example, when John McCain late in the election cycle, pushed back against a woman who, you know, was scared that I think she said Obama is an Arab or something like that. Or yeah. we've heard a few times here recently, uh, Romney's concession speech, mm -hmm. where, you know, he spoke of his opponent as someone who's a good man, and they have de very different views. Um, you know, we've, we've had moments of loyal opposition, right, and pushing back against the crackpot 
theories, right? But that's, I, it seems like uh, you described also in your book, George Wallace's, his influence on the party. And it's like Trump is the, the political spawn, uh, but, but an even dumber and meaner version of it. So I guess the question is, are Buckley's heirs ever going to be able to win the day? Or is the conservative movement, movement permanently hijacked by the likes of uh, Donald Trump and Sarah Palin and now Marjorie Taylor Greene? At the, at, at the moment, at the moment, uh, the Buckleys of the world, the George Wills of the world are in um, almost complete eclipse. Mm. And the face of the party is Donald Trump. It is Marjorie Taylor Greene. It is the successors of Sarah Palin. And that that was one of the shocking things that happened to watch that happen, especially yeah. the, when when I had thought this is what the conservative movement was. What, what do conservatives do? They read Buckley. They read George Will. They read Charles Krauthammer. And the conservative movement said in virtually all one voice, no, we, we prefer Sarah Palin. <laughs> We're going to go with the guy coming down the escalator. And it was like, really? Um, now, b- before we, we go on, I mean, look, there are elements of Buckley that are troubling to reread in in, in retrospect. Oh, yeah. You know, some of the stuff he wrote about race in the 1950s. But he retracted. He, he went well, back. Well, that's from- the key. That's the key, that he was willing to grow and to retract and say, I was wrong. Yeah. Um, and as somebody who's obviously felt I was wrong about other things, I respect that. So, I mean, there are the people who will look back and say, look, though, you know, what you're seeing now is not is not a departure. It's the through line. Oh, come on. You guys were always like this. You know, uh, Buckley would have liked Donald Trump. No, that's not true. There, there was an alternative future. There was there were different paths. Jack Kemp, Paul Ryan were going in a different direction than Donald Trump. And what's happened is the conservative movement has basically decided we, we don't want that intellectual tradition. We want this nativist, nationalist uh, tradition. We don't want to identify conservatism as an idea or a philosophy. We want it to be our attitude, our posture. And so there's a real fundamental difference between the kind of tribalism we have now than what was the project in the beginning, which was, hey, let's create think tanks. Let's write books. Let's think these things through. the, the way in which the conservative movement was grounded in small, American conservative movement, grounded in small liberal humanistic values. I mean, there were other trends, but remember when Pat Buchanan became one of the first people to stand up as kind of, you know, this, uh, this demagogue who toyed with anti-Semitism, it was Buckley's National Review that called him out. They were willing to call him out. He understood that if you were going to have a movement you needed to set limits. There needed to be guardrails. And right now, as you're seeing with Marjorie Taylor Greene, there are no guardrails. As strange as this may sound, and I haven't put this connection together before, you've just given me reason to be hopeful. Okay, help me then. Here's why. I recently read a series of essays by a theologian named John Howard Yoder. And he... I think this is in the Jewish Christian schism revisited. He talks, I think, I think I'm remembering this clearly, but the principle holds. He talks about the miracle of the survival of Judaism, despite the fact that throughout history, Jews have always been a minority, an identifiable minority, not only a minority, but a minority with no weapons. We were among the Babylonians, the Persians, and all of these, the Romans. 
And all of these civilizations, great and powerful, a bunch of chest thumpers, if you will, who were no more. And yet the Jews had what? They had principle, they had ethics, they had law, like human uh, law, and they had intellectual rigor. Mm -hmm. they, they passed down the law. So what you're describing, maybe this is a stretched analogy, no. but I think that those, the 10 Republicans who voted for impeachment, they stood on principle. They stood on ideas. They stood on thoughtful response in the face of great terror, literal terror, right? Um, folks like yourself, uh, folks over at the dispatch, they're, they're not the popular kids in school anymore, but they have principle and they have thoughtfulness. So, you know, if we look at, if we look at history, I think integrity, ethics, principle, thoughtfulness is more resilient than a bunch of, you know, a bunch of uh, kids peacocking around the room. No, and we think of ourselves, I think, you know, to a certain extent as as the remnant, since yeah. we're, you know, I'm, and, and you know, that's Jonah, Jonah, Jonah Goldberg's yeah. uh, podcast is called The Remnant. I think, you know, very much so is that, okay, we're, we're not going to be the most popular. We may not have the biggest numbers, but we're going to sort of, we will keep this, this sort of fire alive for now. Um, because you're right. In the, in the long run, you're going to look back at some of these narratives and these memes and people are going to go, what the hell are you talking about? You know, one of the things I like doing, we were talking about history before, is um, reading about people who were amazingly famous and powerful at one time who are completely forgotten these days. I mean, it's <laughs> complete, you know, the cycle of history is, uh, can, be, can be kind of relentless that way. And I'm absolutely convinced that many of the people now that we think of as, as well-known, I mean, the Corey Lewandowski's and, and things like that, will be just the, 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 the merest, you know, foam flex on, on the, you know, on the, on, the, on, the, on the sea in the past. So yeah, this stuff is not going to age and it's really not even intended to age. Uh, the, the whole political culture that goes from moment to moment as opposed to asking what the meaning is. You know? So we were talking about uh, influential books before. Yeah. Um, I think when I was in college, the most influ single influential book that I read and it's influenced some of the key decisions I made in my life is Viktor Frankl's The Meaning of Life. Oh, right. And that that image where where he says that that he asked people, imagine yourself, you know, lying on your deathbed, you know, you're 90 years old and you're looking back on your life, trying to determine what was the meaning of my life. And you look back at the moment you're at now and you ask yourself what the decision that you made when you were 20, 30, 40, how did that contribute to the meaning of your life? But you see it from that perspective mm. of your life as a narrative, as a story. And I've always thought of it that way. And whenever I've had to make a choice, I always think of it, okay, when I look back at my life, when I look back from a different time, what's important, what's not important, you know, did I make the right decision? And I guess in some ways, I'm always surprised when I see people who don't think that way, because yeah. the, the, the people who go from news cycle to news cycle or moment to moment, I was really shocked. I think it was, wasn't it Bill Barr, the attorney general at one point, they were asked, well, aren't you concerned about your legacy? You know, doing this. Aren't you concerned about how you'll be remembered? And I think, remember what his answer was? It was, it was like, something along the lines of the winners write the history or something like that. Well, or? it was, he says, I'm going to be dead soon, so I don't really care. I yeah. said, whoa, isn't that the opposite of what you should be thinking? That right. yes, we are going to be dead at some point, and we really ought to care how, because all this stuff 
that you're doing now. I mean, so I don't get, you know, 10 million clicks on, on this the latest tweet. Who cares? You're right. <laughs> so, so many of his answers in those, in those types of interviews were so cynical. So I, I have some, I, I'd like to get inside the room for a second, since you were for the better part of 25 years, uh, a very top rated conservative talk show host. I was always curious, you know, I was, I was listening to actually January 6th. It was, I'm on the West coast, 11 o'clock in the morning. So it was 2 PM there. And this was a moment in time, if you remember how that day played out, that was very similar to 9-11 in mm -hmm. that, uh, but a specific time in that morning. Uh, it was when at least one of the planes hit the towers, maybe before the second did, um, but before the towers came down, there was this moment in time when I remember distinctly feeling something really historically terrible has happened and it's happening and we don't know how bad this is going to be. So January 6th, a, a little less than a month ago, we were in that point of the day. Something historically terrible is happening right now. We don't know how bad it's going to be. I was in my car and I have XM radio and every once in a while I'll tune into Hannity or Will Cow or Levin just to see, because I thought as bad as this was, there are certain moments in history where there's a, an opportunity where we don't have to be cynical. We don't right. have to be so divisive. We don't have to have this cold civil war happening. And I'll tell you, it was Will Cow and he had these, already not just well-formed, but like congealed talking points. And they're still basically the talking points. It's where was your outrage when they were burning down Portland? Yeah. Oh, man. Um, I've been hearing reports of, or another version of many people are saying uh, that it's BLM and Antifa. And then the worst one uh, that, that he said was, what, what, what did you expect? You know, the, the, the same thing that an abusive husband would say as he's beating literally, and I've been in these situations tragically, where look what you made me do, talking about you know the big yeah. lie election fraud, right? So here's my question, long way around the barn. Here's my question. Not that you ever participated in something as gross as that. Um, like I said, I've, I, I yeah. listened to you at that time and that was never the case with you. But my, I, I always wondered, is there some sort of fax or mass email that goes out from Back then, it might have been um, what's his a Frank Luntz um, or or a Steve Bannon type with these uh, talking points that you know all the guys in conservative uh, on 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 the radio they they all get the same talking points. It, it seems that way. Well, you know, you you asked me that question before we we did this, and I was thinking back in the in the nineteen nineties how different things were because th there was nothing like that. So I think that there probably was a little bit more independent thought. You had to come up with your own take. You actually had to, or if if I had to have a take, I would probably, you know, get the take from somebody like a Charles Crownhammer rather than say, you know, risingpatriot.com, um, you know, website or, or something like that. But right now there is a herd mentality. There's a hive mentality out there and you can see it on social media and it happens incredibly quickly. And it's gotten to the point where I can predict it. I can say, this is exactly where they're gonna go. Yeah. They're gonna go for the lowest hanging fruit. They're going to go for the whataboutism. They're going to go for the denial. They're going to go for whatever talking points, because that's one of the things that's really striking. We have like a thousand different outlets, but it's more 
it feels more, you know, um, concentrated. You have all of this diversity on paper of all of these different outlets, but they're all saying the same thing. So yeah, it is, and you can and you can pick it up immediately. And one of the things about Donald Trump that I think can't be emphasized enough is how he inserted himself into this world and he watched the memes and then he would pick one and then he would recycle it. They were not necessarily following his lead all the time. He was following their lead. He would see something and then he would, he really was the first talk radio candidate that he began to, as president, pick themes that a, I would say low level talk show host, conservative talk show host would, would do kind of the bumper sticker mentality. Yeah. And you, yeah. and you see that among some of the Fox hosts, the Sean Hannity's of the world, the Don Bongino's of the world. I mean, they're just, they just sort of spout. It's almost like Mad Libs, the same, you take, take the same terms and just kind of randomly scatter them around. Right. Socialist Antifa, you know. It's, oh gosh, I guess it is really going for the clicks or the likes or the shares or what have you. And based on certain words that, work in an algorithm or something. I, I don't, I'm not really sure. Well, it's not just that. I mean, there's that cynical level and there are, there are a lot of people who do that, you know, go for the ratings and everything. But there's a lot of also is how do you bond yourself to your tribe? What is the tribe? How do you protect the tribe? What do you say? You know, oh. what, 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 it, what is the line going to be so that, that you are part of it? And there's a real fear on the right of anyone getting to the right of them. You know, you could tell that that there's this this fear that that I don't want to be that nuanced voice because suddenly I will be flanked by somebody who is giving them the more red meat. So Fox News is looking over its shoulder and watching OAN yeah. and they're watching Newsmax. Newsmax. Yeah. Rush Limbaugh had a whole generation of younger talk show hosts out there. He was not going to be the voice of moderation when all of this was going on. So there's this massive vortex that is drawing you and you don't want to be left out. So yeah, you have the, the same think uh, throughout much of the conservative media. So it sounds like your preparation I was curious how you prepped for a daily radio show. Was it just a lot of reading of really good thinkers? Well, I tried to be, yeah. I mean, this is part of the problem of three and a half hours a day, yeah. uh, which I don't miss because that's a lot of that's a lot of opinions you have to have. One, one of the things that I'm very grateful for is they don't have to have an opinion on everything every day. <laughs> no, seriously, that means a lot to me not to have to have it. But uh, yeah, we, we would, I would, my producer and I, we would, you know, in, in the old days, we would actually clip the newspapers, um, <laughs> you know, and then later, of course, you know, the internet links. And I would try to find what are the smartest, best people doing. Um, and if, if, if that meant reading an editorial from a newspaper, reading it verbatim, then, then I would, I would do that. And quite frankly, for a very long time, uh, there wasn't a lot of other competition. Now, if a host comes out and talks about X, and all of his uh, fan base has been on Facebook.com yeah. reading about Y or Z or whatever. You know, there's going to be tremendous pressure on that host to talk about what, what the audience wants him to talk about. Well, now you have some of the smartest and best on your at the bulwark. So you get to mm -hmm. talk to them for an hour or two every day. Boy, I see. I love that. We, we sort of started off with this, that that one of the and I this is a blessing is that for one hour a day. I get to talk to really interesting people about interesting things. Yeah. And I don't have to worry about the calls and the emails and the letters and stuff <laughs> like that. I just, you know. And so that that's that's kind of the goal is to have that kind of a that that kind of a conversation. 
and that people can listen to whenever they want. Yeah. So there are a lot of differences between radio and, and doing a podcast. It sounds like you're really having a blast. Well, you know, I, I did the, yes. Um, I, I did the radio show for 23, 24 years, three, three and a half hours a day. And I left after the election and I left voluntarily, but I also knew where the audience was going on this. And that was, yeah. that was, that was actually not that hard a choice, but I have not one day have I looked back on that and thought, you know, I wish I was doing that again, because I, I think that one of the things the media is, has, has done now is that you can find your own audience. Yeah. And, um, I, I don't, I don't have to pander. I don't have to talk about something that I'm not interested in. I don't, I don't have to worry about, um, you know, getting in, you know, hundred ads or something like that. I, I just, it, and so, yes, the bulwark has been kind of this extraordinary accident that has let us say what we think. And that's kind of the fundamental way with we define internally. Uh, our mission statement is that we will say what we think. We're not going to be like a lot of the other media that feels like, okay, we can't say this because the donors are saying this or because our bosses insist that we tow this particular line or uh, because uh, we're going to lose audience share if we don't, you know, uh, you know, push this MAGA talking point. So we all feel very liberated. Yeah. Now, I want to say something about the bulwark. Uh, for those who have not already been blessed by tuning into the podcast or reading some of the great writing that's being done there. There's just, there's so much good content. So, you know, some of it is free and I, I really appreciate that. That's how I started listening to the main, mm -hmm. the Bulwark podcast. But then um, if, if you decide to sub subscribe, it, it's worth every penny. I, I can always count Thank on you. great analysis, great commentary for, and, you know, some of the smartest, most principled and fun group of people and all with, not just an impressive, but a varied professional backgrounds. You know, we get multiple newsletters of subscribers, multiple podcasts. I, I love the secret podcast. <laughs> the, the, the virtual meetups are fun and um, just really many great, informative, edifying, uh, entertaining, a lot of great material. Where do you see the bulwark going from here? Well, it's an interesting question because, as I mentioned before, the bull was kind of accidental. Um, it was not the the subject of of all kinds of market research and planning. Uh, it was we we launched it three weeks after the Weekly Standard was was murdered, and we didn't know where it was going to go. So I think what it evolved into was something far beyond anything that we ever expected. I mean that that that's really an understatement. Up oh, two million per per month, right? Is that did I hear that right? I'm sorry. Two million downloads per month. Oh, it did more than two million a month. Yeah, we we just a couple of days ago we passed thirty-two million total downloads uh, for the, the the podcast, and and the traffic on the on the web, but also I just the quality of the writing and the people who want to write for us, and 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 I, I just think kind of the the quality of of the analysis. I'm just so proud of the entire staff, the entire team, and all of the the writers, and I think there was a lot of speculation that well, since the bulwark is so you know clearly anti-Trump that that it will, uh, its brand will expire, of course, when Trump loses the election. And I mean, there was a lot of that. Well, you know, what, what will an anti-Trump publication do? Well, I think that since the election, since January 6th, we, we see the mission statement very clearly, that this fight against authoritarianism, the fight against this, uh, the, the, the toxic uh, distortion of the right is going to continue. It may continue for the rest of our lives. We don't know. Most of the Bulwark stay, has, has stayed, as you point out, free. We have launched Bulwark Plus, 
which and if you do and thank you for mentioning this uh if you if you sign the membership you get the newsletters you get some of the the podcast but what it's also done is enabled us to to be on a, a sound footing going forward uh we are still a nonprofit. we're going to remain a nonprofit, i believe but i think so you know for the last couple of years we have relied upon the kindness of strangers but now we have a group of people we have a we have a membership um you know through substack and i think that now it's it is sustainable so i think that a publication that was launched sort of scrambled you know at the end of 2018 2019 that we thought might last a year has gone on and continues <laughs> and i think it's going to be around a very long time yeah, it's uh, going on three years now. Is that right? We just hit our two-year anniversary. Although it okay. feels like a, it feels like a decade. Because yeah. Of course, you know the, the time-space continuum has been warped into the in the Trump era. I was curious. Bigger picture, there is some really great content being produced by the Bulwark. Uh, we talked about the Dispatch. That's a great team over mm -hmm. there too, with a little bit of a different, uh, slightly dis different disposition. Um, Lincoln Project, I know, is a political action group, but they are also producing some great content. Do you see a larger ecosystem, maybe not to counterbalance all that's happening in mainstream conservative media, but to provide like there, I, I think there are so many folks like me. I heard Ben Sass mm -hmm. recently talk about, you know, the folks who are taking a lot of the oxygen out of the room. He was, I think he was talking about a study that was done, a large study that was done where, oh gosh, I, I wish I remembered the name of the study or the group that did it, but they estimated that really the extremists, if you will, the folks who are just absolutely obsessed with politics, it's about 5% on the right and 6% on the I've left. I've heard you, this, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, but there's so many of us that aren't orthodox uh, Trumpists, that aren't orthodox, uh, and I hate to make this a, a equivalency, but like Bernie bro or yeah. what have you. So many of us are nuanced in our opinions. I might be very, very fiscally conservative, and yet uh, on another, say, a social issue, right. maybe a little bit more nuanced uh, on, on abortion, for example, um, or pro-life. You know, I'm genuine, generally pro-life, but I'm, I'm a Chris Christie pro-lifer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, things like that. I, I wonder if you're if you're creating a, a whole ecosystem for folks that are a little bit more new, a lot more nuanced than the some of the portrayals would have you believe i would hope so i i i think that the success of the, the publications that you mentioned you know really owe a lot to the fact that there's a tremendous hunger for this sort of center right center left dialogue that, that people are not necessarily on the extremes they want something different uh so uh, look, we wouldn't be where we are unless there, there was unless there was an audience, unless there was an appetite for it. Um, and I like the fact that you use the word ecosystem. That's not just one publication. That suddenly you create a universe where you know, you know, here are you know conservatives or liberals who share the similar values and are not going along with this. There is still a remnant of sanity out there. I also think that we might have a. I don't know whether it's hard to you know judge your your influence uh, on other conservative publications. I got into a lot of trouble in the very, very early days of the of the Bulwark for saying that we intend to shame people who uh, sell out to Donald Trump. So I got a lot of negative feedback <laughs> on all of that. But I do think that that, you know, uh, that they have been watching us and that we have we exert a certain gravitational pullback to sanity among other conservative publications out there. And I think that after January 6th, I will say this is interesting. If you look at the politicians, the conventional wisdom is, and it's correct, that the Republican Party has gone back 
from back to Trump. So there was a moment, a little window, a little, little, you know, sort of Arab Spring-like moment where Republicans were going to say, okay, can we get rid of Donald Trump? And then decided they were going all in on Trump. That's true among the political class. Among much of the conservative media, however, except for the hardcore MAGA types, I think that there was a shift. You're seeing this in the pages of National Review, I think. You're seeing this among other conservatives who had been what I would call anti-anti-Trump. Yeah. They didn't actually support Trump, but they really didn't like, they, they thought we were prematurely anti-Trump, that we were too anti. They have now gone, say, look, we gotta be done with this guy. The conservative movement cannot be the party of Donald Trump, uh, cannot be the party of Margaret, you know, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene. So I think that there has been that positive thing, and maybe that's part of the ecosystem as well at some point. I think also another hero, a group that has emerged as a hero of the last several months is the conservative legal movement. Oh, yes. Yeah. The uh, Trump appointed judges. You know, I certainly learned a lot about conservative legal philosophy. It's not necessarily we can't look at it through the same lens as legislators, conservatives. This is a huge we could devote an entire podcast to this because it turns out one of the extraordinary stories of 2020 was that the conservative judiciary turned out to be a bulwark of democracy. Yes. And I think that a lot of folks on the left did not see that coming. Right, right. I mean, I, I, we were all sort of, I think, you know, bare, you know, white knuckling it, you know, through the, through the year. But uh, this is a moment to sit back and go, a conservative judge is not, does not think the way conservative politicians do. That simply because you're a conservative judge doesn't mean you're going to rule for a Donald Trump. Donald Trump, interestingly enough, you know, one of his, one of his big legacies is going to be the transformation of the judiciary, appointing three justices of the Supreme Court. And one of the things we, we, we now know rather definitively is that Donald Trump never actually understood who the judges he was reporting were, <laughs> what they actually believed. You know, he would spout the things about the judicial, conservative judicial philosophy, but he never got it because he thought that if he named you to the bench, you would rule for conservative victories. And it came as apparently a huge shock to him to realize that, no, it didn't mean at all what you thought it meant, Donald, at all. <laughs> right, right, right. So taking this to the next step, I, I sort of fantasize about uh, Michael Steele or someone like that coming into, you know, let's face it, there's not going to be a MAGA party. There's not going to be a Patriot party because he's, he, Trump is either too lazy or too incompetent to do anything like that. But would Michael Steele uh, ever consider the possibility of starting a new party that really was the philosophical, the political philosophical heir of William F. Buckley? I would have said no a few months ago. I, I think there's a prodigal, there's a pro, there's a process of radicalization going on after January 6th, particularly seeing how the Republican Party is behaving in the wake of all of that where I think that there is going to be more interest in that sort of thing. You're absolutely right that Donald Trump is not going to create a Patriot party because first of all, he's already got a political party. Yeah. He, he, he owns it. So why would he create a new one? Which right. is again, hard work. But I, I do think, look, it's hard in this country. I mean, this, we have a binary system. Um, I can make all kinds of arguments why we should have a third party, but I understand that the, uh, the deck is stacked. However, we have seen the, the birth and death of parties in the past including the death of the Whig Party and the rise of the Republican Party, um, and now perhaps the death of the Republican Party. But I think at some point, um, there are so many people who are politically homeless that the political system has to respond to that. And one of the ways to respond 
is to give people a third choice. Because let me be honest with you, I'm not anxious to move from one tribal loyalty to another. I don't want, and we get a lot of pressure. Well, if you are disillusioned with the Republican Party, Charlie, why don't you become a Democrat? Well, because I've been there. I've been there, done that, don't want to do that again. But it would be interesting to have a third party movement that might be flexible to move in various races, make different alliances between the, 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 par the parties, um, as opposed to just a very, very rigid uh, sort of thing. You know, so for example, you know, there's a conservative party in New York that will occasionally uh, endorse uh, Republicans and occasionally endorse a third, will occasionally run a third party. I don't know whether they endorse Democrats or not, but again, it's, uh, there are different models. So I, I would hope so at this point, yeah. because I gotta tell you, there are a lot of people that I've talked to who have broken with the Republican Party that in the last month, you know, within the last three weeks have said, okay, I am never going back. I am never voting for a Republican again. Um, yeah. This, the last few weeks have been, you know, quite consequential. All of my heroes, uh, many of my heroes actually spoke at the DNC and they weren't Democrats this, this last cycle. Uh, John Kasich, Meg Whitman, Christine Todd Whitman, sure. Colin Powell. Um, I think that there should, gosh, there would be a great home for folks like that, and maybe folks a couple degrees to the right of of, of Joe Biden. Uh, yeah. It seems like there's a critical mass there, but maybe I'm just dreaming. So an important point here. So in your book, How the Right Lost Its Mind, while describing your own political evolution at the point in your journey when you may have been forming the idea of a different kind of Democrat, you say, Memories of the 60s have been romanticized, but left-wing politics came to be dominated by humorless and strident ideologues who did little to hide their contempt for the older generation, bourgeois values, <laughs> and for American culture in general. <laughs> it sounds pretty familiar, actually. Yeah. Uh, so I bring this up because, to your point, because you reject the party of Trump or the party of Marjorie Taylor Greene or the, the the silliness that's happening there, to say the least, it doesn't necessarily mean that you all of a sudden embrace a $25 hour minimum wage or wiping out students. I don't know what your particular issues, stance on those issues are, but the the cause celeb of, of, of the left right now, of maybe the far left, it doesn't mean that you all of a sudden embrace all that, does it? No, it doesn't. Um, and and I think that people ought to understand that, that part of the coalition is that the coalition of the decent is that we don't necessarily agree on ideological things. But I wrestle with this. And I had to wrestle with um, how I was going to vote in, in 2020. And I voted for Joe Biden. I said I was going to vote for Joe Biden, which is the first Democrat I voted for in many, many, many years, if ever, maybe the first ever <laughs> president. Uh, I'm trying to think now through uh, when I turned 18. But the way that I, I worked it out was, look, um, I can disagree with you uh, on 60% or 80% of the issues. We, we don't have to agree on everything. But if you are an honest, empathetic, decent human being, we can do business. So part of it that's an evolution in what I consider important as opposed to less important. And so I was talking about this with Will Salatin from Slate on my podcast the other day. And I think we're, we're in roughly the same place where we have, up until now, most of our lives, we've seen politics in terms of that, that horizontal right-left continuum, right-to-left and everything, you know, fighting out those issues. When right now, I think that the most urgent issues are on that vertical axis of 
do you believe in truth? Do you believe truth. in science? Do you believe in the rule of law? Do you believe in human decency? Th those sorts of things. Democracy versus authoritarianism, liberalism versus this sort of bigotry. And so I find myself not, I mean, I'm interested in a lot of these issues, these right left issues, but I, I'm not engaged with them in the way that I would have been before, um, because I think that the real fate of the democracy is going to be determined by where we end up on that vertical axis. And so I can, I can, I can tell you why you're wrong about the $15 national minimum wage, but frankly, I, I don't, I don't, I don't give the same amount of shit about it that I would have say 10 years ago. Yeah. I, and that's I, in prepping for this. I think you saw that I, I, was looking at a comparison of AOC versus MGT. And it's not a fair comparison because although I could never see myself voting for AOC, I don't think she's a terrible person. I just think she has terrible math. You know, I yeah, think- It's a totally different thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a different thing if you want to wipe away student debt versus wipe away the opponents, like literally kill your, you know, it's, we're talking about, it's not a comparison to be made. I'd much rather have a principled policy debate with someone who, to your point, makes uh, agrees that truth is important, that facts matter, that you know basic decency matters. Are you still? Do you still have relationships with folks who would be considered true believers that would have signed that amicus brief or or support their their representative signing that amicus brief? No, not really. No. Mm. It's too bad. No, I mean, I, I, uh, I was involved in many of these projects in 2017 about talking across the divide and this belief that, uh, that if we just talked with one another more, maybe we could uh, reduce the divisiveness. It's like, what? At a certain point, what do you have to talk about? I mean, seriously, if you're going to buy into QAnon and everything, you know, you go your way, I'm going to go my way. <laughs> but I, it's, you can't have a conversation or relationship with somebody who has a different set of truths, I mean, a different set of reality than you do, because there's nothing to talk about then. If yeah. you don't have facts, if you don't even have sort of guidelines of logic and decency, what is there to talk about? So I do not. I do have relationships with people who I think, you know, made Faustian bargains uh, or had a transactional relationship with it, but uh, not with the true believers. Yeah. I really want to keep that circle as broad as possible of, of people that I'm in uh, meaningful relationships with, uh, folks that voted for Trump this last time around, plenty of friends that voted for Trump. Um, and I think that borderline is somewhere around folks who are still talking about election fraud. No, I that that's where I draw it as as well. Um, so, you know, look, I had, used to have very close relationship with a lot of these people. And and uh, somebody asked uh, me a little while ago, um, you know, do you are you in touch with Paul Ryan? And I said, you know, actually, you know, I think Paul and I are kind of taking a break from one another. We're mm. seeing other people. <laughs> you know, and we'll, we'll see where things go. Oh, Just man. Take a break, seeing other people. And there'll, there'll come a time when the, the fewer conversations we have now, the more likely we are to patch things up later. But I will say that, that to his credit, Paul Ryan did issue a statement, uh, you know, very definitively on this issue of, of election, of the integrity of the election. But if, if, if somebody had signed on to that Texas lawsuit or voted to overturn, pff, dead. Yeah. Dead. Yeah. So he's still on the board of uh, Fox, Fox News, right, Paul Ryan? Well, I think so, yeah. I'd like to think that he has influence there. That, that... I, I, I would like to think it because 
there's a guy that I really do hope, you know, does the, you know, looking back at, at the end of his life and thinking, you know, and look, I was in a position to make a big difference. Did I? I mean, think, think about it. Think about his storyline. Think about where he was. I mean, I was one of the, to say that I was a cheerleader is, is way understating it. Uh, but he was the, you know, his party's vice presidential nominee. He was the speaker of the House of Representatives. He was in many ways, the intellectual leader of the conservative movement. And what role is he reduced to now? I, I was participated in a frontline documentary that was on last week. I don't know if you saw it, Trump's American Carnage. And the only time that that uh, Paul Ryan uh, appears is sort of like in you know behind Donald Trump, kind of smiling and cheering and clapping. And I thought, oh my God, how cruel history can be, you know, to go from a guy who could make such an impact to basically being in the chorus line. Yeah. And but he's a young guy, and he could make a difference. I don't know how you look at what's going on with Fox News if you're on the board and go, yeah, I'm okay with this. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the principal stance is you're going to have to take some bruises now for the longer term benefit of, you know, being on the right side of history. Uh, well, and hopefully exactly. the ratings will follow just like, you know, in, in, yeah. in your world, it, it is uh, the emergence of independent media outlets that gives, that's also a reason to give me hope. A few more questions because I've already stolen enough of your time. One is, uh, do you have any questions for me? No, I just, uh, I just, so how, how does a guy from Los Angeles come to even know about a guy from Wisconsin? I mean, <laughs> it, we're kind of flyover country here. No, stop. Just <laughs> uh, I've always been immensely curious. I grew up in a household, like I said, we were observantly Jewish, but politically very, very left-leaning. I identified more with Alex P. Keaton from Family Ties. <laughs> Ooh. So I, I always sought out the uh, different voices, uh, but but principled voices. And, you know, I I found, you know, I found folks like you at one time, believe it or not, Bill O'Reilly was, uh, was yeah, someone yeah. that I listened to here and there. But, you know, that's uh, folks evolve in different ways, some better than others. You know, but there there were certain voices that I was drawn to that that struck a, a contrast to some of those default positions that that my family and uh, immediate friend circle had and you were certainly one of them so well to that question of evolving though i i, I wrestle with this question all the time you know with somebody like a bill o'reilly like well were they always like that or did they change and and i think that's one of the questions in this whole political era you know the people who have who, who've gone you know full crazy were they always crazy or and and I, my the my default setting is that people are a mixture of good and bad. Um, people are, are are complex, and they can go in different directions. If they listen to the better angels of their nature, they can go in one direction, or they can go in a dark direction. And just we we've, we've seen so many people who I think are fundamentally good people just make the you know fall in with the wrong crowd, and that's why I'm particularly outraged about the whole Trumpian movement, the way that it has exploited and misled people and taken people who I think could have been really good, you know, good constructive Republicans and turned them into these fanatic cult members. Yeah. No, I'm seeing it happen with a couple of friends of mine yeah. who've, they maybe started out questioning some of the assumptions that a lot of folks around them had made. Um, and then starting to get some success and some traction by pushing against some of those assumptions um, and then finding common cause more recently 
getting a thrill out of giving voice to someone like Alex Jones, for example, and then getting a lot of downloads for that. Um, you know, it's a, I don't think it's something that, that happens overnight where it's an evolution, you know, and there's incentives, too many incentives to, yeah. um, continue to go that way and become more and more extreme. So another question, how can we find the bulwark and all the great work that your team is doing? Well, hopefully we've made it very easy, you know, www.bulwark.com. And uh, the the full webpage is free. My podcast is free. Most of the stuff that's there, click on Bulwark Plus, find out what the other stuff that we're having. Uh, sign up for our daily newsletters um, through Substack. Uh, we have three daily newsletters. I, I put out a, one every single morning, uh, morning shots. I do that before I do the daily podcast. The podcast drops around midday. Uh, Jonathan Last has a has a newsletter called The Triad comes out midday. Uh, Jim Swift has a, a overtime a newsletter at the end of the day. They're all completely different newsletters, and we just try to bring you the most interesting, provocative writers we can uh, we we can we can find, and we're going to stay as feisty as possible. <laughs> it's feisty. It's challenging. It's entertaining. <laughs> And it's enriched my life. Uh, and what else Thank has you. enriched my life is, like I said, I've considered you a, a mentor for, from afar. And I feel like I've made a new friend. And that's an absolute honor to be able to say. Well, thank you. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.